Welcome. We are, we are truly grateful that you are here. We've been praying for you and we'll continue to pray for you. Um, just by way of announcement, um, if you are previewing, directly, like immediately after chapel, there's going to be um, charting your course, um, a panel discussion with uh, our calling, uh, calling and career department, um, study abroad, and student success. So please um, stick around for that. You're good. Um, so a, a favorite artist of mine, author, musician, um, he, a uh, few years ago, about five years ago now, um, had a, a, a horrible tragedy happen in his life. He and his wife lost one of their twin sons, a 15-year-old boy. Um, he fell off of a cliff near their home in Australia um, and fell to his death. And um, he ended up writing a, an album in the year and a half or so after his son died. And it's, it's really a, a beautiful, painful um, album. Um, but uh, uh, um, a fan of his wrote him a uh, letter and asked him a question about writing um, after his son had died in the midst of tragedy and pain um, and if his writing process had shifted um, since losing his son. Um, and here's what he said. The, the artist, his name's Nick Cave, um, and he's been around for a lot of years and makes really wonderful music. Um, but here's what he wrote back to this, this fan. He said, for a year it had been difficult to work out how to write because the center had collapsed and Susie and I had been flung to the outer reaches of our lives. We were kind of outlanders floating in deep space. But what had collapsed? What is at the center of our lives? In an artist's case, and perhaps it's the same for everybody, I would say it's a sense of wonder. Creative people in general have an acute propensity for wonder. Great trauma can rob us of this, the ability to be awed by things. Everything loses its sheen and appears beyond our reach. We were surviving, but we were surviving in exile on the perimeter of our lives. And I began to think of, of this concept of wonder. And when I was a child, I was, I was filled with wonder, and it tends to be the case even today. But when I was a, a little kid, my um, dad and I used to go mushroom hunting. Um, we used to go hunt morel mushrooms. And how amazing it was to be walking through the woods and, and underneath like a pine tree or, or fallen ash trees, you find these like crazy little creatures of life that you pick out of the ground and take home and stick in a bucket of salt water and the bugs all float out and then you douse them in a little bit of, of flour and tiny little bit of pepper and fry them in butter and end up being the best food on the entire planet, which is actually true. Um, but, but things like that, the, these, these um, normal events that, that cause us to fill with great wonder. Um, but it's not only trauma uh, that can cause us to lose or rob our sense of wonder. Um, it can be so many different things. I think in, in our culture right now, um, this constant beckoning of culture for us to turn um, everything into an issue, to be people of sides and positions, to look at other people and... and um, to, to align ourselves in different ways. Uh, the consumptive overload of information, of images, of options, click, 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 click. Um, sometimes we forget to just sit on a porch and watch a sunrise or a sunset. And it matters because without wonder, without awe, we end up reducing reality to a shallower dimension. We miss what really is. We remove the transcendent from the ordinary and life and its attendant joys become fine. 
Um, but I think that the best way to renew wonder is to walk into the story of wonder, to step into God's interaction with his people, to wonder at the fact that God does interact with his people, and to ask questions, and to hope to see and to hear the things that God would have our wondering eyes meet. So today we're going to look at a passage that has um, always, since I became a Christian, been a great source uh, of wonder to me, the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of his son Isaac. Um, But before we jump in, would you pray with me? Uh, Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you speak to us in your revealed word. And we ask that now, Lord, through broken lips, you would speak. Be with us and guide us by your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Genesis 22, um, cruising into the, the end of Abraham's life. And the scripture reads, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And the whole, whole story starts with wonder that God speaks. He speaks in the general revelation of nature and history, the moral law in our hearts, and special revelation of scripture. And sometimes, sometimes he speaks with an audible voice. And this is one of those cases. He calls out to Abraham and Abraham says, here am I. He says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God has spoken and asked him to do what seems completely antithetical to who God is and what we know of him. But we need even a little bit more context to understand what's happening here. When Abraham was 75 years old, God called him to leave his home and gave him a promise of land and offspring. He makes a covenant with him, and he swears by himself, promising him this land and these descendants. So at 86 years old, 11 years later, he still has no children. So at his wife's urging, he goes in, and he sleeps with his handmaiden, sleeps with Hagar, and he has a son, Ishmael. At 99, almost 100 years old, God changes his name to Abraham, and he makes the covenant of circumcision and the promise of Isaac in a year. He promises that at a hundred years old, he will have a son. And this is to be the son through whom the promises of descendants will come. At a hundred years old, Isaac is born. His joy, the son of laughter. And the boy grows, and he becomes a young man. And now, at 110, 115 years old, God calls him again. Abraham. And again he says, here am I. And this time he says, take your son, the son whom you love, the one that I promised, your joy, and take him to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering, a sacrifice on the mountain of which I shall tell you. And it must have left Abraham with the question, why? Why, Lord, would you be calling me to do this? So Abraham rises early in the morning. He saddles his donkey, takes two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So Abraham rises early. He takes a donkey, two servants to help, and his son. He cuts the wood that will start the fire for the burnt offering. And they set off together and they travel. For three days, they camp 
they eat meals, they talk, and Abraham three, has three days to ponder God's call. Three days of thinking and wrestling and praying. Why would God want this? Why would God call him to sacrifice the son that he himself had provided? And I have to wonder if in time the question shifted, because I started to think, what would I be asking myself on that three-day journey if God asked me to sacrifice my child? The why would be the first question. Why, Lord? Why would you call me to do this? Why would you call me to do this? But eventually, when you ask why over and over, you come to the conclusion that ultimately you may not be answered why. So the question shifts, and it becomes not why, but can I trust you, Lord, no matter what the answer to the why is? Can I trust you even when I can't understand what you're calling me to? And I think that's what happened, because Abraham comes to an answer. When they reach the spot that God tells him, he looks up and sees it, and then Abraham says to the servants, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. It's not a platitude, not an attempt to fool anyone, not an attempt to put a good face on it, but the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham had come to the conviction that if he actually did kill Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. So in faith, he tells them that the two will go, but they will be coming back together, the two of them. Scripture says Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And there's two things in that simple verse. One, it reminds us that Abraham is old and Isaac is young. Isaac was the one who needed to carry the wood. And two, a young man who's not committed any crime for which he's being punished is carrying a tree that will be used in his death up a mountain for his sacrifice. And the scripture says, so they both of them went together And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And hear that, the the book ends. So they went both of them together. So they went both of them together. The phrase repeated at the beginning and the end as they walked together. And it emphasizes the love and the affection of this time walking up this mountain to the son's death. My father, my father, my son, my son. They went both of them together. And with Abraham's odd answer to the question, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? God's going to provide it. We have to, be, have to wonder if it's beginning to dawn on Isaac what's actually happening. If he's actually starting to realize that perhaps he is the one is going to be the sacrifice. Well, when they come to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. They reach the place where God had told Abraham. He builds an altar. He lays the wood in order that he's going to light on fire, and he binds his son Isaac, and he lays him on top of that wood. And we have to wonder, what actually happened there? What actually took place? What did it look like? Abraham and Isaac build this altar. They lay the wood and they get it right. But no sacrifice has shown up yet. There is no lamb. 
Scripture just tells us that Abraham bound Isaac. How did he bind him? The boy is younger, stronger, faster. Could have run. He could have fought. I think there's really only one answer. And actually, just for context, has anybody ever met a person who's 110 years old? 100 years old? 90? 90 years old? Um, Not much of a match for a 15-year-old boy, right? I think the answer is simple, and it's that Isaac had to have allowed his father to bind him. Instead of running or fighting, he was obedient in the face of fear and in the face of death. And I hope you can already begin to see where we're looking forward to and what we should be thinking of. So he lays him on the altar, and the picture comes into focus. The son who carries his own tree up the hill for the sacrifice is obedient to his father that he loves and that he knows loves him. And then we're told that Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And forgive me, I couldn't help but think this last night as I was going through this again and reading through it, thinking through what it must have looked like. A 110-year-old man, 115-year-old man, raising a, a, a knife to, to kill his son. And like, would he have had enough power to, to quickly kill him? Does he know that, that he's probably going to have to bring the blade down several times to end his life? Anyway, he raises his hand to slaughter his son, But the angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham, God speaking again, his voice, the same address that he used when he called him at the beginning of the story. And Abraham here answers again in the same way. Here am I. This time he says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. It's not that God did not know Abraham's heart Instead, God calls Abraham to surrender to him. Even that thing on earth that he loves most, the one thing that could be an idol above all idols, his son. And the testing of Abraham becomes an example of faith credited as righteousness lived out in life. The willingness to sacrifice that which is most dear to us here with open hands to our loving God. Then scripture says that Abraham lifted up his eyes, like when he lifted up and saw the mountain where he was going to sacrifice his son. Now he lifts up his eyes and he sees something else. Behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. The repetition continues. Abraham looks up and this time he sees the provision of God in the sacrifice I want to say a little bit more about this ram. Um, Abraham's son has just been spared. He has been at the point where he's about to end his life, yet God in his mercy and his grace provides another sacrifice. So Abraham looks up and he sees the ram in the thicket and he knows that this is the provision that God has made instead of sacrificing his son. So they go, and, and when you picture a ram, don't picture a little bait. Rams to be massive animals, right? And when he gets his horns locked in a, a thicket, a thicket, a copse of trees, we're talking actual trees. And the ram must have been struggling. His, his horns are locked there. 
So Abraham and I assume Isaac go with, and they get this big animal and carry him up and put him on the, on the altar, on top of the wood, right where Isaac had just been laying. And then Abraham slaughters the ram in place of his son. But there's something more to the slaughter of the ram. There's something more to the nature of where the ram was that's more for us than it was for Abraham and Isaac. That ram was caught in a thicket of trees. And from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, tree is a sign of judgment. From Adam and Eve being judged by God when he comes into the garden in the, in the midst of the great theophanic stored storm cloud and pronounces judgment upon them. Through the Old Testament, time after time after time, the king of Ai, Achan, we see them judged at the tree. In ancient Near Eastern cities, um, you would have your court at the, at the gate of the city, but the judgment would take place under a tree. And the reason was simple. The tree would be the place where the execution would be carried out, where the judgment of death would actually be carried out, be hung on a tree. And Scripture tells us that those who are hung on a tree are cursed of God. Deuteronomy talks about not only are they hung on a tree and cursed of God, when someone's brought down from the tree after they've been executed there, they would pile stones upon the body, a sign that they didn't deserve resurrection at the last day. And this ram, this ram is caught in a thicket, he's caught in a tree, and we look back and see and we know that this ram is under the curse of God. This ram is under the curse of God, and he points to the sacrifice that will also be under the curse of God, his son, Jesus Christ, who will die in our place, taking our curse upon himself, as Paul talks about it in Galatians. You keep moving. The angel of the Lord calls to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. By myself I have sworn, the first and only divine oath in the patriarchs, where God swears by himself, because of your faith you will be blessed. But we're told one other thing happens. We're told that after this event, Abraham names that mountain, the Lord will provide. He names the mountain, the Lord will provide. And the next time that God himself is the one to provide a sacrifice in all of Scripture takes place on that exact same mountain, Mount Moriah. And this time, it's his son that he provides. His son, his innocent son. The incarnate son of God. He comes as our sacrifice to be nailed to a tree. Paying a punishment that we could never pay. Standing in our place and incurring the wrath and curse of God. That we might become children of God. And that we might be restored to union with God. So I'll close by returning to this concept of wonder. How amazing that this story of four men and a donkey, a father and a son who are walking in a seemingly lonely path together, 
were at every step pointing to and giving sight into the coming and sacrifice of God's Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And thousands of years later, we marvel at how God continues to speak through them. But the true wonder here is that this passage is not about our children belonging to God or about the faithfulness of Abraham. It's about the faithfulness of our covenant God, the love and obedience of the incarnate Son of God who loved us, who died in our place, paying a price we never could that we might be made God's children. And that picture in my mind stands out of Abraham over his son about to kill him. And then this ram in the exact place, and he does kill him. And it gave me this, this, this picture of me on a cross, laying on the ground with the nails about to be driven into my wrists and into my ankles, with Roman centurions standing over me and crowds jeering at me. But like that, it shifted. And God says no. And instead, he comes and takes my place at the cross and endures what I deserve. The love of God the Father expressed in Jesus Christ the Son on behalf of his unworthy children. If we live in that truth, if we marvel at it, it will be impossible for us to be blinded to the wonders of the world in which we walk as the redeemed citizens of the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious God, you've spoken through the prophets. You've spoken through the actions of your servants, Abraham and Isaac. You've spoken in your word, but you've spoken to us most clearly in your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you, Father, that we look to the scriptures and see your faithfulness through all generations. We thank you, Father, that you love us. We thank you, Father, that you deemed us in our unworthiness still worthy to be loved, that you gave your Son that you might call us children. Father, I pray that we would stand in wonder and awe, that we would never be dulled. I pray, Father, that you would make our spirits um, hunger and yearn for you and your truth. Let us not be content or satisfied in life unless we are resting in you. I pray that you'll be with us this day, that you'll bless us and draw us near to you by your spirit and in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand.